This talk was given by Ronald Hogan Green Sensei at the Zen Center of New York City. Hogan Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order and is co-director of the Zen Center of New York City. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org donate. Thanks for your support. Good morning. The title of this talk is The Old Revolution. It's a song by Leonard Cohn. Uh, many of you may know of Leonard Cohn. He died last year. He's a Canadian poet, songwriter, author, singer, entertainer, wild man. Um, and this particular song was written in the uh, late 80s. And it, um, I use his songs, have used his songs, and still a couple more I haven't uh, spoken to um, because they very much relate to Zen practice, spiritual practice. And in the course of his very varied life, he was a, a Zen monk for a number of years and a Zen practitioner, uh, serious in a monastery. Um, and um, his work has always reflected um, something I've related to uh, mainly, and I'll speak to that in a moment. So the old revolution, and I, as usual, I'll spare you and not sing it. Um, so um, I finally broke into the prison. I found my place in the chain. Even damnation is poisoned with rainbows. All the brave young men, they're waiting now to see a signal which some killer will be lighting for pay. Into this furnace, I ask you now to venture, you who I cannot betray. I fought in the old revolution on the side of the ghost and the king. Of course, I was very young and I thought we were winning. I can't pretend I still feel very much like singing as they carry the bodies away. Into this furnace, I ask you now to venture, you, you whom I cannot betray. Lately, you've started to stutter as though you had nothing to say. To all of my architects, let me be traitor. Now let me say that I myself gave the order to seek and to search and destroy into this furnace, I ask you now to venture, you whom I cannot betray. Yes, you who are broken by power, you who are absent all day, you who are kings for the sake of your children's story, the hand of your beggar is burdened down with money, the hand of your lover is clay. Into this furnace, I ask you now to venture, you whom I cannot betray. It's uh, interesting to work with the city Sangha for me. I, you may know I was born and raised in Brooklyn and uh, I left it as soon as I could <laughs> um, when my uh, schooling was complete um, because I recognized that um, I could not, um, or I did not think I could wake up 
in this environment. Of course, this environment was, uh, at the time I left, was 1965. And uh, the city was not a very nice place to be in 1965. It's much different now. Yet, the pressure of the city is a driving force, and it's unrelenting. Um, it, I always feel the city is kind of this writhing place of enormous energy, this cauldron that's always bubbling and changing and morphing. And, um, um, and you may or may not see that over the short term, but when you've experienced the city for a lifetime and you've seen every neighborhood you've experienced change into some other neighborhood uh, and realize that never stops. Uh, uh, it's impressive, that driving force. And uh, it puts enormous pressure on us to close in on ourselves and protect ourselves, to separate ourselves, to stake our ground, and to stake our individuality. And this protection comes at a heavy price. Uh, we tend to carve out distance from one another. And with this distance comes distance in our relationships, uh, comes degrees of alienation, and uh, the alienation permeates our relationships, uh, casual relationships, passing on the street relationships, intimate relationships, friendship relationships. Uh, so those we work with, those we have romantic relationships, those we pass on the street. And so we become alienated from alienated from our very source of being, from our heart. That becomes our way of navigating our life, is with distance. And we feel that, and it can take, we feel that yet it can take a fair bit of suffering and pain uh, and recognizing our own limited capacity uh, that's imposed in the way that we're living. Uh, before we're willing to question the most basic assumptions that we may have about how we're living. And, you know, it's, it's, we can carve out a place in this city or any place where we and ours are protected, but that's the walls. We're protected. So we can bear a lot of discomfort uh, we can bury a sense of wrongness um, beneath the goal. So what's the goal? Now, that's your business. That's your question. What's your goal? What, you know, what's the goal of how you want to live your life? What are you doing, anyway, with your life? You know, the busyness can be so consuming um, or we can just automatically be set on a path towards something that we may not even know what it is, or we may know in, in some sense and question or not question. But, you know, what do you want as you go about your work, your being at home, your relationships, your family relationships, your intimate relationships, your, your business? your exercise, your distraction, you know, what do you want from your life? Is this even a question? Are we just on automatic drive? 
and able to pick our head up enough to even ask the question about who we are and what the hell are we doing? Sometimes our deep assumptions about our style of being are so deep they don't seem like assumptions. They're just a given. They're in place. They're a block of granite about who we are. It's just the way we are. It's just the way things are. And life goes by. Life goes on. And you find yourself building more and more situations and platforms based on that assumptions until you can no longer see the ground of your very being. It just piled on one another. <laughs> this, uh, you know, Leonard Cohn wrote supposedly songs, but they're all poems. Uh, he couldn't make a living as a poet. Uh, so he, like Bob Dylan, took his poems and made them into songs. And you can almost always tell someone like that because they have such a bad voice. Uh, but their bad voice is so clear and clarified by, their, by what they're saying, that they have such a terrific voice. That the voice, it's, it's not a sweet voice, it just penetrates you, it goes right into your body. And that's how, you know, I wonder if there's the same thing in music, I'm asking a musician that, but uh, he'll tell me another time. But, you know, I, I always wondered about a certain group of singers who could do that. So the old revolution was written in 1968-69, uh, maybe three or four years after Kennedy's assassination, um, right immediately after Martin Luther King's assassination, Robert Kennedy's assassination. Um, it was written during the Vietnam War, which for me is contemporary and fixed in my brain. It was written during the year of the Tet Offensive, which I don't know what it means to people in this audience, but literally, and is not well, well publicized in our history, but literally, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese were killed by that offensive, which was a, a massive attempt by North Vietnam to come into South Vietnam and um, uh, take over the country and um, expecting South Vietnam, the people of South Vietnam to rise up and um, much murder on both sides. It was the year of the chaotic democratic convention with riots. It was the year of black power salutes at the Olympics. It was the triumph of Richard Nixon's Southern strategy of which there are still significant echoes in our land today, using a racist strategy to get him elected. And, you know, it fed right into Leonard Cohn's own kind of semi-depressed, uh, poetic sense of things. Um, he wrote a, a book previous to writing these songs called Beautiful Loser, which kind of represented himself to himself um, uh, but he also uh, puts his finger right on both the suffering and then in later work uh, addressing that suffering 
uh, which is why I use his work. But understand that this is somewhat of a, this poem is coming from a particular time. And of course, that time has significant uh, resonance with our time. It's not difficult to see. So he says, I finally broke into the prison. I found my place in the chains. Well, where is the prison? Not far, I would say. Not far from any of us. And it's interesting that he uses the word chains. Actually, chain. This is different versions of the song, but all the ones that I could find use the word chain. Uh, and one sense, chain gang, perhaps, being chained. But Leonard well knew the 12 link chain of existence, of causal existence that the Buddha taught. He knew that. He was coming from a, an investigation of Buddhism. And that chain is, basically starts with our conception and birth and through a series of how we perceive and how we think and how we conceptualize and understand and project creates endless suffering, creates the world of samsara, the world of chain, chains, and it's cyclic. And it creates endless, endless pain. And, you know, when I th think about 1968, which is very alive in my memory, and um, 2018, um, I see a chain. I see an ongoing revolution of the wheel of life and death, the wheel of suffering. I don't think much has changed in the 2,500 years since the time of the Buddha and undoubtedly preceding him. So it's a pervasive truth. Uh, last week, we, we looked at the, uh, in a workshop, I think it was last week, I lose track of time after a while, but we're here, uh, at the Four Noble Truths, which is the ground of the Buddhist teaching. And the first is that life as we ordinarily uh, live it inherently is dissatisfying, inherently is anxiety-producing and suffering. Uh, and the second is uh, how we do that. And so, you know, I, found, I finally broke into the prison. I found my place in the, in the chain is exactly the first two noble truths of the Buddha's teaching. That's, that's it. We're recapitulating the chain. And that truth of pervasive suffering is the prison we, we all live in. Live in, live around, live, live within. And so we grow up and have to find a place in this prison that we're breaking into. Uh, and it's tracked for us. You know. and, uh, and I meet many who are struggling to do this, to find out what their life is, uh, to find out what their calling is, or to find out how to love and be loved, and um, how to find who they are, and how to understand who they are, and how to address the implicit although it's not usually spoken directly of in that way, suffering that they're experiencing from that sense of lack. And 
in the midst of this, we have to find a way to support ourselves. So we live in this overtly capitalist society, which demands that, you know, quote, the cream rise to the top, even though it's a fixed game. We have to, so we have to live. Um, we have to do this in a culture with all of its challenges, its racial challenges, its gender challenges, its power. Uh, the dominations that exist, the severe imbalances in education, in wages, and social inequities, which I'm not sure it's any worse. In fact, in some ways it may be better, but it is certainly much better defined nowadays than it has been. It's much clearer. It's much more obvious. So we can certainly appreciate that, that it's visible. Then he says, even damnation is poisoned with rainbows. And this actually is the, the pivotal and most important point of this whole poem, really. Of course, damnation is poisoned with rainbows. But it takes a certain desperation on our part to give up the the suffering as the entirety of living, no matter what is before us, a certain willingness to challenge and to question what hurts so much, a willingness to look carefully into our pain and to see where it arises from, because it's arising from us. To see the inevitability of that pain on the road before us, And if you don't think so, just remember what the road before us will lead to. As the Buddha said, sickness, old age, and death. That's inevitable. There's there's nothing you or I or he can do about that. It takes a, a significant, a deep determination to trust something within us. To trust that who we are is fundamentally rich, it's fundamentally wide and big, full of goodness, that we ourselves, no matter what our feelings are, no matter what we think, no matter where we place ourselves in our own mind, no matter what the outer or inner circumstances of our life are, is full of goodness and willing and able to live in this inherent goodness and its inherent that's, that's the important part. It's a given. It's who you are. But it remains for you to discover that. Our life is wide open to all possibilities. But if we close our eyes, which we're well trained to do, and fear to step into the possibilities, then that's our life. That's what we've created. Not usually even knowingly, it's just kind of how it happened. And that then results in a life of small possibilities, a life of measurement and safety, not willing to risk, being safe in the chain gang. There's a lot of safety. There's a lot of connection in our suffering. So it's easy to live a life of measured distraction, of measured discomfort, 
of measured willing ignorance, which the Buddha pointed at is at the bottom of our suffering. We just don't know any better. It's like my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, who's indomitable, fearless. And so she climbs the bookcase, you know, and I come into the room and she's up there, you know. She just doesn't know any better. That bookcase can fall. I enormously admire her. (laughs) So we can keep our head down on our chest and not look up and allow for occasional ripples of a sense of incompleteness that flashes across our iPhone screen too fast to really pin down, let alone study with depth. And the possibilities I'm speaking of are not the usual humanistic encouragement to be all that you can be, but instead to be all that you truly are, that you already are in one sense, but may not know that. And to know it, you're going to have to, out of necessity, search, risk, try, venture into circumstances you do not know were even possible. And I'm always fascinated by people, I've said many times, who come here for the first time and are hearing something such as what I'm speaking, and I wonder what you're thinking. You know, I wonder if the thought is, what have I wandered into? Because it's out of context to a lot of extent particularly the Zazen, and perhaps the liturgy. Yet if you do so, if you risk, if you practice this way, your life will unerringly move to a wholeness, a completeness, that you will recognize as your own. It will have a sense of familiarity to it no matter what the circumstances or contingent factors are in your life. And the circumstances and contingent factors in our life come and go. Birth and death, relationship, love and distance, pain, sickness, health, joy, sadness. So this this practice is not about achieving some mental state where you're always just fine, thank you. Because your life will not be just fine, thank you. Just trust your own experience up to now. But can you, no matter what your life is, be whole with it, be complete with it, be sorrowful with it, be happy with it? That's what this practice is about. It's not about a particular fixed mind state. It's not about happiness and a feeling. It is about fulfillment in a particular way that is not dependent on anything except your very existence. And from that perspective, wherever you look, you can see and understand possibilities of a wholehearted way wholehearted in grief, wholehearted in love, wholehearted in sadness, wholehearted in joy.
But you have to look. You have to actually look. In a fascicle, in a section that uh, Dogen wrote, he wrote, us about, he wrote about his experience with uh, his, his teacher in, in China, Ru Xing. And he asked a very particular question, which I'm going to paraphrase rather than reading it. Um, well, this is what he says. It's taught that enlightenment is the same in the beginner's mind as the experienced practitioner's mind. But how can this be possible? If this is so, then immediately upon first arousing the bodhisattva aspiration for enlightenment, you would already be a Buddha. So he's asking about the inherent enlightenment that I referenced earlier in the talk, that the basis of what's realized in enlightenment is that from the very beginning, you have been whole and complete, always that way. So you're born that way, you live that way, you die that way. Now, whether that's realized or not is the question. That's your question, hopefully. So he's asking about that inherent enlightenment, that it's there from the beginning. On the other hand, if there's no enlightened beginner's mind, how can we take steps to the fulfillment, to the enlightened fulfillment of the Dharma? So the enlightened fulfillment of the Dharma must be the fruition of the beginner's enlightenment experience. And the beginner's enlightenment experience must be the seed of fulfillment. So he's saying, if we're inherently enlightened, what's the difference between that inherent enlightenment and the enlightenment of someone who's practiced and realized themselves? And that was, in in essence, Dogen's question. Dogen was a great master of the 12th century, Japanese master, in which if we're inherently enlightened, why do we have to practice? I mean, we're all enlightened. And Rujun said, let me explain with an analogy. It's like a candle with a flame. When the candle is lit, there's a flame. As the candle burns, there is still the same flame. So there's no difference between the beginning time, the beginning time of a practitioner, and the later time of the candle burning. The candle burns straight down and it never turns backwards. I was, before I came down on my personal altar upstairs, I lit the candle and I just stayed with the flame. And for some reason it wasn't flickering, there was no wind. It was like it was totally there without any movement. If I look very closely, I could see kind of in the core of the flame, which has a couple of different shades, if you will, there was a little movement up and down, probably my scientific mind in response to the differences in the candle wax. But in any case, um, it was as if it was immovable, just not a flame at all, almost a solid object. That was just my experience. So the flame burns straight down and never turns backwards. The flame is neither new nor old. The flame is neither new nor old. It is neither the possession of the candle, nor does it exist apart from the candle. The flame is like the light of a beginner's mind, 
The candle, when it is flameless, is like the lack of vision of one who has not begun the way. The wisdom flame of the beginner's mind is complete at the onset. The all-inclusive samadhi of Buddha ancestors is the completion of that same wisdom over time, burning down the confusion of ignorance till the candle is no more. Can you see how this practice has no beginning and no end? Here now and later are not really different. This is the essential teaching transmitted by the Buddha ancestors. We tend to look at things as this and that. That's kind of what our mind is trained to do. But it's not like this or that. Nothing falls into this and nothing falls into that. Nothing. And certainly not you. Is the beginner's mind the same or different? Is your mind of enlightenment realized or not? All the brave young, I wrote, he wrote, all the brave young men, I wrote all the brave young humans, they're waiting now to see a signal which some killer will be lighting for pain. So when this was written, I think he was referring to the Vietnam War, but look to Afghanistan, look to Somalia, look to Iran, and who knows how many places we have soldiers waiting for the signal to kill. But there's another way to understand this, and I'm taking, as I always do, complete freedom with his work. It's the, what an artist has to give up when he does, does the art. It's no longer his. It's much bigger than his or hers. Young men, young women. You see the candlelight on the altar? You see the lit incense being offered? That's an offering to the killer, the one who will help you awaken the teachings, the teachers, the Sangha, and of course, you yourself. You're the killer, if you want to be the killer. We vow to kill our delusions meaning giving our life to our wholeness, our inherent wholeness, and letting the suffering die away. So the only question for you, regardless of your age, are you one of, the, you, are you one of those brave young people? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Another way of saying, what is your life? What do you want for your life? These are the circumstances of your life. You're in New York City now, here, living. What are you going to do with your life? Are you waiting to see a signal? There's the signal on the altar. Into this furnace, I ask you now to venture. 
you whom I cannot betray. The one we cannot betray, if you're willing to head towards that light, is simply your self, you, your very self. That's the one. When Leonard Cohn seems to speak of others, he's only speaking of you. He understands there are no others. It's just you, just him. He says, I fought in the old revolution on the side of the ghost and the king. So did I. The ghost is probably JFK. And the king is Martin Luther. We just had his 50th anniversary of his death. And I studied, I I looked carefully because there was a lot of clips of the last speech he gave just before he was assassinated. And between that and reading about where his mind was in those days and the words of that speech, if you look at the words of that speech, they remind me of Moses taking his people to the promised land, but knowing he could not enter the promised land. And I had that clear sense, for whatever it's worth, that he was having some sense about his own coming death. And I think you can see that in his face. Maybe I'm reading it into it, I don't know. But he was not in a tremendously happy place. That is obvious. Of course, I was very young, and I thought that we were winning. And I did. I was young, and I thought we were winning. And in the short term, in a few years or decades, we do win. Meaning the foolishness of the people in power and the foolishness of people around me, as well as my own foolishness, is diminished. And in some ways, the suffering of the world seems diminished. And there is, no matter how much agony we may be in terms of current events, nationally, in the world, in many ways, we're more civil, less tribal, and there is more opportunity around the world. And big changes are coming, I'm told with the technological changes with artificial intelligence. Revolutions are starting to occur in our society. Things are being uprooted. And yet, social improvements, perhaps racial improvements, gender improvements aside, all of the suffering that we can experience as humans in the present is the same as it was in the time of the Buddha. That seems to be an ongoing perspective, independently of what happens in society. So when we look outside us for improvement to satisfy the whole in us, it doesn't seem to. In fact, you can almost say, you could make a case, I don't want to make it too much from my position of privilege and enough to eat and a good place to sleep, that some of the happiest, or at least people able to be at one with the circumstances of their life, have the least. 
but I don't want to take that too far. I can't pretend I still feel very much like singing as they carry the bodies away. I've mentioned before, I have a friend, Alex, who's a quadriplegic who fought in Vietnam. He's not a quadriplegic because of that, but another aspect of his life, which was innocent of any wrongdoing. But I, th I don't know if I have the exact numbers, but he, he went to Vietnam with a uh, group, um, it's not a platoon, it's bigger, but maybe a company of about 160 people and like 45 came back. He was one of them. Carry the bodies away. Into this furnace I ask you now to venture. This is the world of samsara. It's the world of hell. It's ongoing. And yet all dharmas are pure and whole and enlightened. All dharmas are all of reality, all things of reality, all thoughts, all beings, all physical Entities, the whole phenomenal world is made up of these dharmas, are pure and whole. How can that be? Where do you find yourself in the midst of this? Lately, you've started to stutter as though you had nothing to say. If you do this practice, you're going to get here. You're going to run out of words at some point. It may take a while because we have to deal with the karma of all our shit. And we have to deal with it. Your mind can't begin to become still, not deeply, not in an ongoing way at least, until we deal with the karma of the life we've created, our loneliness and our fears and our anxieties. And they, they will come up in Zazen. Zazen's designed to bring them up. That's the good news. The bad news is that they are. But you get to see them. Maybe for the first time you get to see them in a way that's crystal clear in the midst of our confusion. And we deny our confusion, but we get to see our confusion now. We deny the different voices in our head, but we get to see these different voices. And sometimes it makes us more confused, but we keep going. And things begin to get clearer. And what's clearer is we can't say it. We can't think it. This fundamental being that we are. We can only live it. We can only be it. You know, the, in Buddhism, we talk of emptiness, the no-thingness of things, which, of course, is also fullness. But how do you speak of that? in an experiential way. How do you speak of when you yourself are experiencing the complete nothingness of anything and the complete fullness of all things as you yourself? What words would you say? I just said some words, but in a sense, they're not real words because they're not your experience and they're not even my experience. I can't express that experience truly. So we start stutter, as though we had nothing to say, because we have nothing to say. There's nothing that needs to be said. It doesn't need to be said. And just in an ordinary way, how much of what we say doesn't need to be said? 
it's, it's actually, you know, I'm trained as a monastic and for many years, both in, in this greater training center and in a previous training center, I was the head monitor. So it's, you know, it's what I call the Zen policeman is built into me. <laughs> you know? So every time I see some little alteration in, um, in how an instrument is played or something is chanted, there's a voice in me that says, uh, 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 uh. and it's taken me a long time to realize that my identity is not of a Zen policeman. You know, keep your mouth shut. There are people who are responsible for that. They have better judgment than you. They're taking care of it. Shut up and stutter, you know, <laughs> stutter internally, you know. And it's an interesting voice. I, I love that voice um, because I make so much fun of it, you know. But it's real. You feel it. You know, we have these voices. And do we have enough space in us to see that? and to greet it as my old friend, and to let it be, and not to fix. Stop fixing. So finally, we run out of words and ideas. We're on our knees stuttering in despair at the suffering that is around us, that we can now begin to understand as our very sense of ourself. It's who we are. We've created this. We've put ourselves in jail. We've put ourselves in chains. And we have willingly placed them on out of our ignorance. You know, we have met the enemy. And it's me. And so he says, to all of my architects, let me be traitor. To all the architects. All of my architects, they're mine. Let me say that I myself give the, gave the order to seek and to search and to destroy. It's ours. It's me. It's you. It's no one else. But we haven't realized that necessarily until a certain point in our life, hopefully before we die. Our architects is the, this conditioned life. It's a life of the cultivation of death, death of ourself, not just physical death, spiritual death. It's a very small box, that death. It's a coffin. And we have consciously or unconsciously chosen it. Will we wake up? Will we consider entering this life from a way that is so different than anything we have understood before so that our very vow to awaken, we take vows, we will in a moment, take vows to awaken, shakes, shakes us to our fingers and toes, makes our body shake. Into this furnace I ask you now to venture, you who I cannot betray, Yes, you who are broken by power, that's us. We are broken by power. You who are absent all day. How many days of your life have you been absent from? You who are kings for the sake of your children, children's story, there's that too. You are heroes 
is deep compassion in you. The hand of your beggar is burdened down with money. You're inherently awake. It's a given. You're whole, you're complete, and you lack nothing. It's a given. Now sit your butt down and study that for yourself. Study your own mind so you can see past the confusion and the pain. Trust that. Trust what you cannot understand and yet realize as your own heart. We must be desperate enough to beg, desperate enough to love. One assessment, this is a personal assessment, of a true loving loving relationship, at least over time, is whether or not I have been before my lover on my knees, begging forgiveness, physically or figuratively, begging forgiveness for my transgressions. And I can assure you, if you're in that kind of relationship, over time, that's a necessity for true love. It's the same with loving the Dharma. Am I a beggar? Am I willing to be a beggar? Do I acknowledge my desperation to truly love so that I too can be loved? Do we understand they're the same thing? They're a single thing? And yet, we're already loved in a spiritual sense, already held. The hand of your beggar is burdened down with money. Again, when he says your, it means you. You yourself is burdened down with money. You have everything you need. We've always had it. We just need to see it. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We get confused by our endless desires. We make choices to be ignorant of the possibilities of what opening our heart can mean to ourself, to all beings. We're all blind. And yet we can see. Into this furnace, I ask you now to venture. You who I cannot betray. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as meditation cushions, incense, malas, liturgical instruments, books, and more, visit the Monastery Store at monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.